Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Dimitri, and today we just had a fascinating conversation with Harry Green from Propagate. Last time we talked was about two years ago, right at the start of our of the podcast. And today we checked in with them again to understand where is Propagate, what are they up to? And we started talking about some topics that I think will really interest you. Firstly, we went into how to do run an economic model on tree crops, where to get your data from and what tools to use. Afterwards, we started talking about farm diversification and ecosystem benefits. Gets a bit more philosophical, a bit more creative. We had a lot of fun. And finally, we talk about agroforestry financing and how Propagate have set up a funding vehicle called Agroforestry Partners that helps finance projects. All fascinating topics, very practical, um, and that should help us to understand how to set up agroforestry systems and scale them out. So I hope you enjoy. Harry, welcome on the podcast. Thank you, Dimitri. It's good to be here. When was the last time that we had uh, our call? The first, you were, I think, the number two or number three of the of the show back in the days, two years ago, right? I think, yeah, that was 2020 or 2021. Either way, not oh, recently. So, yeah, <laughs> let's uh, let's give everyone an update. For sure. Nice. But yeah, I thought that that could be a good way to start for you to give us an insight as to what's happened to propagate um, in these past two years. And my understanding um, from also working with you guys is that a lot has changed and a lot is going on. So I think everybody wants to hear, uh, hear a bit more about that. Of course. Yeah, well, we have a team of 20 now increased from three co-founders. So that's good news. We raised a series seed and then recently raised a series A of financing. So that's uh, enabled us to grow. Uh, we built the overyield software. We're managing, we've planted 500 acres, which is 200 hectares of chestnuts in Kentucky. That's the largest contiguous chestnut planting chestnut system in the US. And then we have another thousand acres geared to plant next spring. Uh, we, what else? Personally, I bought a farm in Trumansburg in upstate New York. So that's cold hardiness zone, 5B, maybe turning into 6A, uh, lots of rain. Um, drainage is decent. Uh, we can talk about that later, but propagates great. Life is good. <laughs> Very nice. So I've been hearing that you guys are getting more and more involved in Kentucky, right? Planting chestnuts. Um, we've got some projects there coming up, right? Yes. So we went through a number of different networks to find farmers that uh, the, the main guy we're working with, his name's Keevan. Uh, he had been or has been a corn, corn soy conventional farmer for the past 20 or so years, but has been using biologicals as well. He was super interested in something new. 
So we pitched him on chestnuts and he was definitely interested. And now he's alley cropping hay in between all the trees. Amazing. That's really nice. And what's the, what's the size there of the operation? Yeah. So it's uh, 500 acres planted. Everything's on 20 by 20 foot spacing, which I think is about, yeah, that's, is that six by six? Yeah. Six yeah. by six meter spacing. Um, and the hay equipment that he's using is a bit smaller than say the 30 foot hay equipment that you might use in an open field, but nonetheless, it's still worth it for him to, to take hay off between the trees. That's awesome. I think we should get a bit into that later on as we talk about, um, alley cropping, um, and etc. So just to summarize, you guys have been building over yield. And what, what's the status of Overyield? Where we're at with, with Overyield? Are we, as, is it operational running? We've got lots of users using it. Where are you guys using it actively internally? Give us a bit of a, an update as to where we're at. Yes. So we have about 800 farms in app uh, across all of our users. Uh, the, the crops we have range across a few different biomes, mostly temperate North America, also into the Mediter Mediterranean regions of Europe and California, as you know, and then uh, Hawaii and the Dominican Republic and the tropics. So we have, I think it's 76 different crop templates in app right now. What that enables a user to do is basically log in, uh, see their farm on a map, select a template um, so you can, you can draw lines, you can draw a grid. There's a key line tool for crop patterning. And then it, what Overyield essentially does is sync geospatial mapping with financial analysis. So you draw a line, draw a grid, and it spits out 30 year income statements. So cost, revenue, yield, labor, carbon, et cetera. Awesome. That's really nice. I've been, um, so to let our listeners uh, into the what's been happening on the back end, let's say. I've been working with Propagate to model the um, and integrate the Mediterranean crops, um, 10 of them into, into overyield as well. So it's been a fun process of going from, under, from, from scratch, basically, to understand the crop, build the model, get all the data, and then run some analysis on it and been doing that all with, with Overyield. And it's been pretty exciting and pretty fun tool to use. Um, I've been using it much more on the economic analysis side than on the design side um, on my end. But so I thought that one of the like kind of, of the questions that we hear a lot of actually, and something that would really help the agroforestry space to, to grow as well is to understand this economic analysis process. How do we go about from, you know, having an initial idea of, oh, I need to plant some, do some agroforestry, or I need to plant a, um, a diversified orchard, get some tree crops on my farm, to actually getting financing for it. So that whole initial step of yeah. I'm going to design, develop, plan, uh, analyze, and, and go see somebody that can help me finance this. So... That's what we've been doing a lot of, and I think we can geek out a lot on it. So what do you think? Let's, I, th I thought it would be good to start, start with to that. finish. Let's go for it. All right. So the analysis process is, it's, it can seem daunting, but it's very doable. Uh, sometimes I go back to the, uh, the refrain, how do you eat an elephant? And the answer is one bite at a time. So 
you're going to read a lot of papers. You're going to talk to a lot of people. Uh, you're going to go to YouTube University to understand different components of crops that you may or may not already understand in depth. And the, the goal of all of this research, this uh, acquisition of background knowledge is to thoroughly understand everything that's required to bring a crop to break-even production success uh, from planting through to management, uh, harvest, and marketing over 30 years. And the, the extent to which um, management tasks, install installation tasks are listed out for very smooth, easy consumption it, it varies across crops, to say the least. So if you're looking at something that's um, super commodified, conventional apples, almonds, uh, has a lot of energy put into it from university extension, you're going to find more information. But if you're looking at things like carob or chestnuts uh, or just the, these, let's say, black currants, elderberry, uh, you're going to find less information that's easily consumable, at least in the same place. So going to different sources, uh, say starting with published research, if there are time and motion studies, lists of costs, et cetera, that's fantastic. But what we end up doing is, say, translating papers from other languages, um, looking at what farmers are actually doing, in, a, in addition to, say, published research, which often uh, the studies, I'll, get, I'll give an example here. If you want to understand 10 plus years, 20 plus years of tree crop management tasks uh, and yields and uh, planting methodologies, and say it's 2023, those trees would have been planted in 2003 which means their genetics, their parent genetics would have been planted, say, 20 years before that. So the, this feedback loop cycle is really long. And by the time research gets published, there, there is a, a time lag. It, it has a shelf life. Um, so one should definitely rely on, on research, on, on real published research for data. Some, some of that expires, some of it doesn't. Um, but if, if you want to optimize for what's correct in the present moment in 2023, then um, there's, there's definitely a decent amount of creativity involved. For sure. I mean, <clears throat> the process I, I would go through was first a, a full review of, first I would look if there was good books on this, like good, like decent manuals and books that were, and I would firstly buy them. And then I would look at all the online resources coming from official places. Just uh, that was kind of the structure I would go through, you know. And then after that, I started looking at uh, YouTube. And actually, I got extracted so much information from YouTube because YouTube is usually like, you know, the past two, three years, people have been uploading information on their practices. And sometimes just the fact that you're getting a tractor with an implement being filmed and you watch 10 videos of that implement being used, if it's something you're not necessarily familiar with yet, and you need to just have an understanding, a basic understanding of the economics, 
And again, some, that's, it's really important to, or again, let's say it's the first time we mentioned this conversation. I say again because we've had this conversation many times together, but we're not trying to get to 100% pre- precision at this point. It's not going to be possible for us to get to 100% precision. But we're going to want to get to 80% precision, 70 yep. to 80 for that initial phase to understand what's going on. And then later on, we're going to refine as we call up you know, the service providers, as we investigate further, as we're preparing to order machines, potentially implements or trees, you know, then we're going to get some real quotes um, and we're going to get much more precise. But we can, yep. we can really get caught up in this last 20% to go from the 80 to 100. And, and it's, as, as you had told me, and that was kind of, it, 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 you know, it aligned itself with my experience. It takes just the same amount of time to go from 0 to 80 than 80 to 100. Or from zero to seventy to, from to seventy to hundred. So, it's at this phase of the project where you are doing, um, where you are just trying to do a feasibility study and understand the economics of it. Um, you 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 need to not be perfectionist. Yep, yep. You can't let perfect be the enemy of good, and it, in a sense, uh, one shouldn't worry too much about being perfect in creating a template, if, if you create a template, uh, a crop model that's 80% good, if you're in high school in the United States, that's a, a B minus, so it might, might not feel that good. But the only way you're going to get from an eight to a 10 is if it becomes farm specific. Hmm. So you can, the, 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 the only way that it's going to be 100% right is if it mirrors what a specific farm on the ground has actually done in perfect detail over 10 years or so, which I, I'd say that's approachable, but as soon as you paste that, as you go to implement that on a different farm in a different location, probably even if it's across the street, you're, you will have changed your practices based on what you've learned and what's available to you in real time. A simple, simple example. You've got a mower that is only two meters wide and that's what you got. And you're not going to invest in a new mower that's five meters wide to cover your whole interline. Not yet. So you're using that mower and you're going to have to pass your interline two to three times instead of just one single pass through your, let's say, in the middle of your, in the middle of the lines of your orchard. So that doubles the cost of of mowing, or halves it if you have that new machinery. And that's something which I find fascinating with this whole process, and especially with using Overyield to do that, is that you suddenly suddenly you can run analysis. You can be like play scenarios. You know, what if I have a bigger mower? Okay, so per year it reduces my cost by X amount. That means that I can pay off an investment in a larger mower by X years. So you start to play with the numbers like this and you start to, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of skipping ahead here because You're um, good. Here yeah. we're, you know, here we're like, we went from what types of data to suddenly, you know, what can we do with this data? But it's, it's just because it's exciting, let's say, but that analysis is also what's going to inform decisions as to how to optimize or how to, you know, yeah, well, optimize the funds that you're going to get to invest in your agroforestry. Is it better? For example, another classic a classic decision that you're going to be making with this kind of analysis. Is it better to contract out or to buy the tool and do it yourself? And we have to be careful here. And that's one of the things I wanted to say, linking back to the data types. It's, um, we have to, there's a big difference between this quantitative data and the qualitative data. Because many times that qualitative data 
that you're going to get by calling up machine, um, for example, sellers and getting talking to their technicians and understanding, is this the right place to use that tool? I've got, a, I've got some stones. I've got some irregular, irregular, um, um, irregular um, uh, morphology. I've got some wood that is extremely thick. Uh, it's not fig wood. It's almond wood, for example, of this, of this thickness that I need to work. So these are, this is all the data also that you're gathering as you're going through the process. And you're gaining a lot of experience and knowledge through that, you know, especially if you're starting off and you haven't actually worked with tree crops yourself, which is the, I hopefully going to become a bigger and bigger problem because we want more people to be working with tree crops. So there's also that aspect uh, to, that kicks in. I'd love to understand a bit more about how you see this, Harry, the separation and the, the difference between this qualitative and this quantitative data. Yeah, I think it boils down to also your context and how you want to manage a farm. And if owning metal for you is appealing because you are inclined to be a mechanic, so you worked in a machine shop, growing up and that's very intuitive and that's more appealing than dealing with people because hiring a group of a crew of six people to do the same work as a machine might cost the same over six years but you might be more inclined to either work with people or work with machines um over yeah so uh Personally, I'm, I lean more towards the people side of things, but I have to enter a certain amount of um, an analytical rigor when I'm looking at um, if, if it makes sense to contract out with a whole lot more metal, um, even if that um, like aligns less with my context. Uh, on larger and larger scales, you end up looking at either large crews of, say, folks that plant trees or highly mechanized systems. So in Kentucky, we, we've tried to mechanize everything as much as possible. Uh, the first year of planting, we started with augers on dingoes. So a dingo is a, it's a mini skid steer, um, uh, a bobcat. There are a few names for that. And... So we drill a hole, plant a tree, and what we've moved, moved towards is actually subsoil ripping the line of trees and then cross-hatching all of those lines. So subsoiling, say, parallel to the contour and then doing it perpendicular to those lines. You actually plant a tree at each intersection of, um, of, those, of those lines where there's effectively going to already be... Uh, a patch, a hole, uh, a place of disturbed soil where you can just walk up with a shovel and plant a tree and drive a stake in and it works really well. So I would say when you're looking at trade-offs in machine effective effectiveness, you have to look at your contacts, you have to look at scale, you have to look at the window in which you have to plant. Uh, say in my climate that is the end of March, probably until May 15th. And sure, you could spend 10 weeks by hand planting trees or not or but you also have to look at everything else you have to do during that time. So spring is often a crunch time for farmers. That's an understatement. Um, and mechanization, heavy mechanization is going to be often necessary to just get everything done you have to do in a fixed amount of time. 
zooming back in a bit to the um, to the the data that we started talking about. So we mentioned the literature, books, YouTube videos, and there's also the reports in there. Um, extension services often have some interesting ones. What other data do you use? Other types of data do you use um, um, to 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 fill up, let's say? your analysis and at what point do you go out and start to actually talk with farmers get you know let's let's talk a bit more about this process here about gathering the data yeah i think that that list you gave largely covers it but i think the extent to which all of those interact is really important so you you're going to be able to ask better questions to farmers if you've read more studies, if you've watched more YouTube, and th- the same is true when you when you have say heuristics or opinions or just uh, relevant direct experience from farmers, you're going to have better better search terms. You're going to see and understand things better, uh, whether that's uh, from video content or from text. So it's it's really an interaction and. The, the more prepared you are when you do farmer interviews, when you're modeling a crop, then it's, it's probably uh, exponential, the amount of value you get out of that. Because if you, if you just go up to someone and say, hey, could you give me your management schedule in terms of everything you do from installation through to harvest through to marketing? it's a rare person that can just list everything and give you the necessary detail. Like that's probably never going to happen versus if you ask specific questions when you're interviewing farmers about how they manage a specific crop, then um, A, it's cognitively easier for them to tell you things because you're just asking a more specific question. And um, you also give value to them by just asking, um, we'll say easy, but relevant questions that, um, allow them to lend their expertise to someone. For sure. Um, and that's making me think like about who to approach. So after I did this initial analysis, I would then go out and, or during, but usually afterwards I would go out and interview people and talk to people. And one thing is talking to farmers, which it depends where you start from, what's your position, but it can be very useful. Um, and obviously, but with farmers, it's a specific relationship. They're not, you're not, you know, they don't have necessarily all the analysis done. They don't have necessarily all the costs present in their mind and etc. And And also that they're busy and they're doing their thing and they're usually going to do it because they want to help you. Um, because you know they maybe hopefully have a contact with them, or they're interested in your project. Uh, they're excited that somebody's going to be setting up uh, this kind of systems close by. So they're gonna. That's it's a specific relationship. And if you if they're a chestnut farmer, for example, and you're going to be setting up chestnuts, they may be interested in collaborating. Yeah. Um, and be like, oh well, he's got chestnuts. Maybe he can, for example, sell me his nuts, and I can pr- process them for him, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you got to kind of find in people the where they may be interested to open up and to collaborate same thing with service providers or consultants if you're thinking about running economic models you are in a position where you're thinking about setting up a project so be very clear about that when you're talking with these people because you know this is then you're you're you're, you're, you could potentially work with them you may you will probably need them 
if you don't have specific yeah. experience with a certain thing and you they do so positioning yourself as like well i'm looking for partners in this project i'm looking for people to collaborate with i'm looking for people to provide me services and in exchange i would i need some help for for you to set up my business plan and and that's something that's very common and something that's i've often seen is people are very receptive to nurseries as well have a lot of experience ask for contacts Hi, so could you show me some farmers that have planted your trees? Could I go check them out? Also, it's the normal kind of process to just see, are they doing a good job or not? And so they should be comfortable with sharing some of these things. And usually the people that are they're doing good business and that are doing good work, they will be. And then you're doing multiple things at the same time. You're gathering data and you're building the network that you're going to need when you get to the implementation phase. So you're not, lo- you're not wasting and losing your time. And those are going to be very valuable resources human resources and human capital that you're going to need to build your project because you're not going to do it on your own. (laughs) Absolutely. I think, I think to expand on that, the group of people that are most, that is most willing to answer the most in-depth questions, the hardest questions is probably machine salespeople that can give you, that can give you specs on their equipment because they, their job is to compare whatever they're selling to competitors and their job is to tell you exactly what a certain implement can do um, that comes with the caveat that they're they're trying to make a sale and sell you whatever they have but if you triangulate between uh what the the salesperson says and what the farmer who has been using that implement for a while says and what the extension agent says then then you can get it generally get a really good picture of, of what you need that's i think i think that's spot on and also you should get many you should get two to three sources let's say per information so you, you if you identify for example the main cost centers of your operation and um you don't just want to go see one fertilizer company to ask them for, that, that's another one by the way people that are really up open to share information the fertilizer companies um and and the people that are selling inputs they're a huge resource i've had some of them to tell me oh well come with me then to the to this farmer and we'll go question yeah. this farmer together and ask him some stuff they took me in their car and they brought me to speak to farmers um, because they are in the business of doing sales and communication and building networks. That's what they work with. So they're actually the companies they work with uh, pay them to do that. So it's something that they're very open to do and they enjoy doing it. They'll take you for lunch, you know, or you'll take them for lunch, hopefully, because, you know, they're giving you some valid information. So be cool yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah, like totally. if you can get. Yeah, tell me. Oh, no. Wh- yeah. And when you. <sighs> When you want to when you want to interview a farmer, you probably have to go and see them in person, and yeah. ride in the tractor with them, talk to them while they're fixing their machinery, like be super respectful of their time, and ask them questions while they're doing something else. Ask them, frankly, I think more easy questions as opposed to fewer difficult questions, which is just conversationally good, no matter who you're talking to and in terms of like start with the start with the easy topics and then if they feel comfortable talking about specifics then uh jump in there for sure i would also advise like to be quite well prepared before going to speak to and to do to do these interviews etc because if you don't have an, a good understanding of the basically what does what is the operational process of a tree crop what does it mean to implement and to manage a tree crop. What are the different cost centers there? What are the different tasks you're going to be engaged with? What are these nuances? You're going to struggle to get kind of the, 
the complete um, view of it. So I would, I would flip this another way as well. The more experience you have with this, the easier it is for you to construct these models, because also you're going to, you're going to be able to like kind of compare what they're saying with your own experience. You know, why is this person managing to prune a tree in only 60 seconds whilst it's taking me two minutes, 50? Um, is that because of the pruning style that they're using? Is that because I'm doing a pruning every three years, they're doing it every year, so it's much lighter? So having that experience and going to speak to many farmers, but doing things yourselves, I think really helps to also um, understand a bit more about what's happening. Talking to different people and understanding the whys of the differences there in terms of costs. Ah, here the service providers are much cheaper. Why? You know, why are they much yeah. cheaper in this region? Is much more of an abundance? What does that mean for you installing your farm? What does that? What? How does that? Like, how does that affect your strategy for, for example, building capital and um, and investing yourself in machinery? Yeah, absolutely. And I think as as we've painted this picture, a listener can see that it's quite a gritty process of looking at thirty years of management for an agroforestry system. And I think the light at the end of the tunnel is being able to communicate the value of trees really well, because that's something I think at least in the agroforestry in quotes space is somewhat opaque. Uh, we there's there's almost like a shared understanding that agroforestry provides ecosystem services, provides food and yields income, but we don't necessarily talk about production in that way. So I think um, when I first reached that conclusion and articulated it was just after the URAF Congress where we met, I think that was, was that 2021? Yeah, spring, fall, no, May, 2021 in Sardinia. And hmm, or 2022? Was it 2022? Okay. So. Was it was that that was last summer? Yeah. Okay. 2022. Mm-hmm. And amidst uh, a plethora of plenaries from PhDs, there was this message that agroforestry is great, but no one was quantifying it aside from like carbon fixation, and. I think there's a shared understanding that like agriculture produces food and income for farmers and the agroforestry crowd speaks to the ecosystem services that agricultural and farm agriculture and farmlands can produce. And I think there's a really good opportunity for just elucidating that to a much greater extent. For sure. And I mean, one of the things that I came out of, of URAF as well is looking at are we, what type of agroforestry systems are we looking at? Are we looking at agroforestry systems that are focused on ecosystem services and therefore that require a different strategy for financing, for design, etc.? Or are we looking at agroforestry systems which are meant to generate an income for farmers, such as, for example, chestnuts or in timber trees, hybrid poplars is a, is a good one for, for southern, central Europe. Hybrid poplars also for biomass in more northern Europe, but the economics aren't as good there. For, for for these crops. So it's a different type of agroforestry. Um, and we also have to be very clear about, you know, what we're designing, what are our objectives. Um, are we integrating a windbreak just for biodiversity or are we integrating a windbreak for economics? But then the next question, which I'm going to ask you, I'm going to push this one over to you, is can yeah. we do both of them? 
at the same time? Yeah, I was, just, I was just about to say it's often both. And <laughs> nice. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be an economist for a second. Uh, farm income is usually in the domain of market goods. So you're, you're selling goods that have a market price and are then that price is dictated by mostly the law laws of supply and demand and ecosystem services are not a market good they're a market failure so there are they're, they're what's classified as a public good which other other uh types of public goods are public health uh, uh national defense uh clean air clean water are, are ecosystem services so the private sector is ill-suited to pay for public goods. So in to a certain extent, it's very much warranted that um, there is a non-market focused on, focus on agroforestry because it provides ecosystem services. And the ecosystem services have, for many people, at the conferences we go to been the impetus for agroforestry. It's it's rarely the case that someone says, I have stacked all of these crops on top of each other to make more money, even if that system does make more money. So uh, in, in terms of agroforestry yielding both uh, profit and ecosystem services, yes, it does. And there's often an overlap there, but we have to be honest with ourselves on uh, which sector we're expecting to pay for what we produce. For sure. And this is one of the issues with, you know, once I, on, on actually on this podcast, I asked uh, Christian Duprat, why don't you think that more agroforest systems are being planted? And what he told me is that, well, I've planted trees here 30 years ago that I'm going to harvest in 10 and so there's also this, and these trees are clearly, they're huge. They're having a big impact, impact on the landscape. They're providing a lot of ecosystem services and they will eventually provide a very decent, hopefully a very decent income. Although again, there's uncertainty about the price of wood in 30 years. We don't really know. There's tendencies that we can kind of follow, but maybe, you know, trends have changed completely. Who knows, you know? And so, you know, the fact is that Agroforestry will also benefit and produce economic benefits in a different time frame that the costs are being incurred. And so it's it's quite an economic decision at the end of the day as to why this isn't necessarily why we're not scaling out agroforestry. And so if it is that if that is the case, if it's a big economic decision, because I believe that it's a big part of it, but not all of the all of it, then how can we what's the solution? What can we do and how, what is Propagate's take or Propagate's strategy to tackle that fundamental issue of the public good, um, the lag of, 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 of financial returns? How, how, do you, what, you know, how do you tackle that issue? Yeah. So the great thing about finance or uh, one way of uh, establishing the, the rationale of finance is that it moves value forward and backward in time. So if you say have a house that you're going to obtain a mortgage on um, or start a business that you're going to create equity in or sell equity in uh, at the onset of the business, you've essentially bundled all of the value 
of that house um, into a, a certain dollar amount, euro amount, et cetera, in the present. Uh, so if we look at paying up front for a house, say $400,000 or something like that, versus the rent you'd pay over 30 years, finance allows you to pin those two things against each other. So I'll take this back to tree crops. As Propagate, what we're doing is equity financing tree crops. And I'll, I'll explain that. What that means is that we're raising money from the private sector, from investors, such that they can own the tree assets on the land as assets separate from the land itself. And in, in that they have equity, they have ownership of the trees, they then have a right to a revenue share, a profit share of what those trees produce over the long term. So you're, you're taking the long-term benefit and packaging it in a way that is accessible to people with capital in the short term. Debt financing is, is similar in that it, you have collateral. So if uh, in, instead of the, excuse me, um, the, the collateral is often um, the, either the land itself, it's a, if it's a mortgage on the land or the value of say a house itself, and you 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 promise to pay a certain amount every month or every year over a certain number of years, but in the meantime, um, the entity that extends that note to you, that loan, uh, effectively they don't, they don't actually own the house or the land, but if you don't pay for it, then it the ownership goes back to them. So. Um, Finance, in that it moves value forward and backward time, just makes implementing uh, long-term agricultural systems a whole lot more convenient. And what we're starting with is equity financing of uh, tree crops of chestnuts on leased land. So you're using the analysis that you did with chestnuts to raise capital let's say a slow form of capital as well, because I'm, they're not expecting returns from, you know, to start from the second or third year here with chestnuts returns, commercial returns are going to start from sixth, seventh year, right? Or a bit more. Exactly. And so you're finding capital that's, that's investors that are ready to, you know, structure um, a loan or invest in, in, in this kind of context. And that's allowing the farmers to get paid for the management and their work now, uh, but they have to share, they will be sharing the benefits in the future with the investors. Yeah. And they're also motivated by the ecosystem services that those systems provide. Okay. And what happens with trees that do not provide an income? And that's the problem. It's like, if we're just planting chestnuts everywhere, some would argue that, you know, Okay, so that's good, but that may have, a, a, like we can't, for example, in, in certain regions of southern Portugal here, we've just got olives and not even just olives. Well, in the, actually, let's take a better example, a, a more classic example. In many regions of southern Spain, you just have olives, traditional systems, old olives, you know, they can be 50 to 100 years old, but all you see is olives and you could, we don't want to reproduce that landscape. 
beyond the fact that it's also tilled to hell, like it's crazy, but yeah. you know, it's just a monocrop of olive. So if we want to be doing agroforestry, we want to be diversifying. And so how do you finance or how do you integrate diversity in a way that is that, that makes sense? Are there compromises that need to be made? Are you working with different types of carbon ecosystem credits? Just how, how do you plan in diversity to these orchards? Yeah. So I think the amount of diverse, we'll, we'll start with uh, an ecosystem perspective and then go back to the economic perspective uh, just because we've hammered on economics and finance for a while now. The, from an ecosystem services perspective, in with with, with diversity, biodiversity, uh, water retention, f- uh, flood mitigation, carbon sequestration, uh, the more geographically specific you can be when you structure payments, the better. So the the analogy I like to to give here is the town or city or municipality at the bottom of a valley uh, should be intimately linked with those upstream because they are providing clean water. uh, They are providing a general cooling effect, uh, say trees around buildings. That's, that's a bit separate, but I think the more specific you can get with payments for ecosystem services, the greater the success. So, uh, the antithesis of that is global carbon markets, where the willingness to pay varies drastically, say from eight to five hundred dollars per ton. However, the um, the willingness to accept, i.e., the cost of sequestering a ton of carbon, varies drastically whether you're planting uh, fast-growing trees in the tropics or slow-growing. Uh, long-term, say, oak trees in the temperates. And then in terms of economic diversity, we really have to look at who is managing that system and that piece of land. Uh, Are they looking to integrate more people, more livelihoods, more family members onto that land? Uh, Or are they just looking to manage it themselves? So sometimes you want more economic diversity and you want more income from a piece of land and the either the opportunity or the or the constraint is how many people do you have and need to manage that system so if you can have more yield have more income from this the same land base without increasing management or just with changing management but not increasing management hours or costs then that's an ideal scenario uh and that's more of a direction than uh, an achievable state so there, there there's a lot there to unpack Nice. I also one of the things that I'm 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 seeing in your designs and that I'm enjoying a lot is that whenever we plant a and, and this links a bit more to like how do we do regenerative agriculture, right? But whenever we plant a productive system, we have to be integrating um, a framework of like an ecological framework, and that's the backbone of the productive system. And so when we're, these, has been, these frameworks have been destroyed, there were a lot of hedges and the, the landscape was much more, had a lot more biodiversity elements integrated to it. But we, we've simplified this landscape in, in crazy terms. And actually, when we're talking about agroforestry, we often need to talk about landscape ecology. And, and they're so connected together. Um, and 
understanding landscape ecology helps us make much, much better decisions about agroforestry because basically when we're planting, for example, a chestnut orchard, we need to be thinking about what are the sensitive areas of this land, for example, riparians, or also how can we break up this land with hedges, biodiverse hedges, and, and or it can be, for example, what areas of this land are too steep to farm where I can take advantage of this and put and place, um, for example, the forest there, um, a diversified native forest. So these are the kind of, when we start to think about these terms, and any farm will have an infrastructure, so we'll have, for example, paddocks of five hectares that will be always divided by biodiversity elements. And these biodiversity elements are also part of that compromise and of the way that we're going to think, okay, we're not going to take half of our land and put it to, and turn it to biodiversity. What we're going to do is we're going to take key elements of the land we're going to plant them with highly biodiverse and highly impactful if you look at ecological studies. So a hedge is very impactful for, 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 for many types of uh, biodiversity. Not all, because some types of biodiversity need like a big patch, we call it, a big patch which is not disturbed. Yeah. While, like enough hectares the... to have jaguars in Costa Rica. Exactly. You need for like example. what, 10,000 hectares for jaguars to feel comfortable. Exactly. That's exactly the, the the thing, and it happens a lot with like different bird species that need a certain patch size. So it's the, the hedge is, a, is still a compromise. We still need across the landscape patches, and beyond that, what we're trying to do is we're trying to grow our tree crops regeneratively, and and agroforestry enables us to diversify, and that's something that's really important as well. We are taking a chestnut crop, and underneath, it's one thing is having like we have in the olives in in Spain, just a bare land with hardly a weed growing. Another thing is having a native pasture that we're harvesting potentially as you're doing in Kentucky. So I don't know if it's a native pasture. It could be a mixed cover crop type pasture or planted prairie, etc. But you've got, so we're constantly trying to think, how do we add in biodiversity and, and potentially how can we make an income from that as well? Because that's going to justify being able to add in diversity. It's the same thing they're doing with broad acre crops when they're thinking about, okay, we need to have many more crop rotations. And when we, instead of having bare soil or fallow land, putting a cover crop, which with eight, 10 species in there. So we're constantly trying to think, how do we firstly integrate biodiversity on, on, and on, on the edges? And then inside, how do we integrate biodiversity? And many people on the show will, will say, and as we've interviewed, for example, Mark and the people from Mata do Lobo, they'll say, well, then let's take this logic even further. Let's do, for example, a syntropic system and let's plant a super biodiverse system within that. So my question to you then is, if we're thinking about biodiversity and I, you, you are, I've, I know you're doing integrating alley cropping, integrating all of these things that I've mentioned now, you are actively working with them, planting forests on lands and even forests that can be harvested in the future, etc. Beautiful. Why, why are we not pushing the logic even further and, and, and you know, making a very diverse, like a, a, a highly diverse um, chestnut orchard? So putting in yeah. apples, putting in pears, putting in currants and this and that. Mm-hmm. that, that what, what, what's, the, what, what's your thought process behind that? Well, yeah, I, I think one of the large benefits of this of what the Sintro crowd has done, the Sintropic crowd, is that they've shown that in a physical sense, at least on, say, a hectare, you can stack a myriad of enterprises, of crops, of species, and with early successional species synced with uh, species that provide long-term benefit and species that provide food, you can have this r- rich ecosystem um, 
I think where the rubber hits the road there is with the labor rate you're going to need and the number of people you're going to need to manage uh, a certain number of hectares like that. Um, so I think what one of the one of the systems that we planted, I'm going I'm to give a, an example here that I think in part uses syntropic principles uh, and stacks enterprises is a chestnut black currant alley cropping system. Uh, and it, it, it works. Um, we're, we planted it, we're, we're managing it. I'll just do a, I'll describe a little bit of, a little bit of it here. Yeah, for sure. At, Sounds fascinating. So, yeah. So at, at 60 foot, 60 feet, which is 20 meters between rows, but uh, they're, they're sorry, excuse me on 60 foot row widths, there are chestnuts. And then there are two rows of mechanically harvested black currants between those rows of chestnuts. So it's not like a black currant shrub right beneath a chestnut tree, because to make black currants viable, you have to machine harvest them for the most part at a, say, 10 acre plus scale, unless you have a whole lot of people. Um, and so there, there are multiple crop types there. Uh, and then those rows are wide enough such that you can mow in between those rows and uh, rotary rake the grass as mulch onto either the black currants or the chestnuts. So all of that's possible. We've, we've done everything there. The catch is that for a lot of farm managers, farmers, that complexity is, is difficult to manage and it's not necessarily within um, what the, the realm of what they would be inclined to do. So things like curved lines are a headache. Uh, complexity can be a headache. So you, you have to have this, it's almost like a combination of personality types and just experience and capacity, this constellation that uh, makes it possible to manage a complex system. So you, you're going to need someone that uh, is, in, in terms of like big five personality traits, open to experience, they're open-minded, uh, they are low in negative emotion, which means for anything that could go wrong, they don't experience a lot of negative emotion and they, they generally see the bright side of things. But at the same time, to actually get everything done, you need someone that's conscientious, conscientious in that they prefer uh, delivering, getting things done over uh, the option to have infinite spontaneity. For sure. Very interesting. I mean, especially if you're thinking about a farmer that was doing row crops and now suddenly he's got to integrate tree crops. That requires a whole new set of skills. We've talked about this so much in this podcast um, in, in, with other guests that, you know, adding suddenly, for example, a syntropic system, which requires a, 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 as, as Ernst Goetsch says himself, like the, 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 he says that one of the main critiques that people say about his system is the knowledge intensity, like how much knowledge is required to manage it. And definitely it's a hypersensitive and sensible, not sensible, but like sensitive and precise management um, that, that is required. So it, would, it can be pushing it a bit too far for a farmer. And again, who we're starting with, right? Who's the farmer? But for many instances, already integrating a tree crop and or hedges is already a headache 
who got to manage it, you got to check the weeds, make sure the trees survive. Um, if it's chestnuts, well, you've got to check for illnesses, potentially, you know, treat them, um, prune them. It's a lot of new skills. Yeah. So if you have highly open, highly capable, motivated people, you can establish a beautiful system and get amazing drone shots of it. But how do you scale that to people that don't necessarily fit those characteristics? So you said that you're working with an alley, uh, um, um, black currant and chestnut alley cropping system. Um, and you said that that's, that's, nearly, that's nearly too complex at times, right? Um, yeah. To manage and et cetera. So what type of alley cropping systems are you preferring at the moment and are working well for you? How are you diversifying you know, your orchards uh, to practice agroforestry? What's the most common practices yeah. that you're using? I think what we've landed on, uh, I joke about it and say that we're trying to get to fully automated luxury agroforestry. So everything is on GPS coordinates of trees. Uh, you can have auto steer tractors harvesting hay or crops in between rows of chestnuts. Uh, you have a chestnut sweeper harvester go through. Um, everything's planned on a long-term time horizon based on available machinery. And that, I'd say that's, uh, we're doing that, but that's also a certain direction. That is, it's, it's a context, it's a compass heading, as opposed to something that you uh, do or do not achieve. Okay. So in, in, yeah, in terms of alley cropping systems, like you can, all right, I'll give an example. On my farm, I have three acres deer fence. So what's that? A he 1.2 hectares um, or so deer fenced. Half of that is uh, tree nursery. I lease some of that out and it's just for crops that uh, are highly niche that we plan on scaling later on. And the other half of that is and I have to say half a hectare of orchard and I have 15 species of fruit. Uh, and I have friends that are growing like squash and cabbage between the trees. And like, you can totally do that, but it has to be within, uh, like I, we totally overuse the word context, but it has to be within your realm, <laughs> within your realm of what you find reasonable to do. So it's like, yeah, there's a farm in France. It's in, I, I forget what part of France, but it's called La Durette. And that's uh, basically market gardening in between uh, more widely spaced rows of trees. And it's beautiful and it seems productive and replicable. And that's a way to grow food. Uh, we also have to look at like staple crops and uh, calories of fat, carbs and protein per acre. Because if like if you only eat cherries and kale, you're going to be really thin. And they've been, I mean, they've shown in various experiments in China, Canada, and in France that you know growing timber crops with um, you know as in alley crops, doing an alley cropping, sorry, with timber and cereals in between or legumes has been working pretty well. And is that something that farmers in, in, in the Northeast are interested in? Has anybody come up to you and be like, okay, I love your, uh, your black locust uh, tree crop. I want mm -hmm. to plant them on 60 feet or more, let's say 80, 100, 120 feet. And in between, I want to continue uh, planting my, do they even do corn and soy or is it too cold up there? Oh, they, yeah, they do a lot of corn and soy. Okay, nice. 
Um, and so, yeah, I mean, has anybody ever, like come up to you and, and, and asked, asked you to set up that kind of a system? Because that's a typical agroforestry system, right? When you think agroforestry, you think of Ali yeah. cropping cereals. That's the picture Claire that comes up. Guelph and exactly Brazil and the Polonia exactly. and wheat intercropping in China. Yeah, that's the that's the money shot of the red combine going between the poplar trees in Montpellier. Such and, a classic. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It looks amazing. Uh, we yeah, we pitched sure. that to Keevan in Kentucky, and he said, "Why don't we just plant chestnuts?" the return looks good let's go for it he he said i have en- i have enough land to grow corn on elsewhere i don't i don't need to grow corn in between trees which was curious uh, i didn't necessarily expect that uh we have a pilot we just ran the design phase the clients interested of poplar some robinia some hardwoods, widely spaced, 40 meters between trees, alley cropping in Kansas. That's on, I think, 120 acres. That should be interesting. Um, the, the catch there is that the landowner is interested in agroforestry and the landowner and the farmer are two different people. So it's not like you have this um, super experienced uh, 68-year-old farmer that wants to plant trees at wide spacing. Um, we i've i don't know i don't know what percentage or how many designs we've uh made to be we've designed in wide spaced alley cropping systems i'd say the uptake from farmers has been kind of low on that um we could speculate as to why a farmer in chile uh gave a reason he said it's too it's basically it's too complicated uh i he grows chestnuts and hazelnuts and blueberries and he grows grains. And he said, I'm going to grow the grain over here and I'm going to grow the trees over here. And they're two different things. I'm going to manage them separately. I asked, I also asked him about um, integrating livestock into the, the tree systems. And his, the reason he doesn't do that is that he needs really strict phytosanitary. Is that the word? Just, sanitation um standards to export his crop so okay wait but yeah we've been going on about over yielding for a while now yeah is there let's let's readdress this a bit is there a case then or not up to you to decide here i'm asking you all these hard questions that i wish nobody uh, was asking me (laughs) no no for sure is there like a case for over yielding in the terms of if this farmer is thinking it's too complicated, but if you came up to him, it's like, but the economics is nice though, but you can make some extra cash in the first years while the trees are small, et cetera, et cetera. Like Dan Shepard, who we interviewed, one of yeah. my favorite interviews on the podcast. If anybody hasn't listened to it yet, it's so direct and practical about agroforestry. That was he's, a good one. he's the boss. Yeah, he's the boss of that. Yeah. And so, you know, is there not a case for, for, for overyield then? Go for it. Well, there, yeah, there is an economic case for overyielding and that if you plant the trees like 30 to 50 meters apart, you get uh, 104% the control yield of a non-treed system over 12 years, which that's corroborated from uh, Canada, China, and Brazil, I believe. And so the question is like, how much complexity... Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll phrase complexity as a cost that you can value. How much headache are you willing to deal with for that uh, increase in revenue and increase in income? And, the, so and like, that was 4% yeah. that you said, 
104 140 yeah, i can i can i yeah 104 no that that was just the uh that was just the that was just the grain the biomass so they actually okay. showed that okay. uh if you have widely spaced trees that your grain yields are going to be higher especially for wheat and soy less so for corn because it's c c4 um and the, it's a zero sum relationship between photosynthesis and but but that will growth, that but... will compensate that may not even compensate for the tree rows being there or probably will because the tree rows will probably occupy between three Less and five percent of the space yeah yeah for yeah. sure and so, so that will compensate yes. for the tree row so you'll have the same yield of wheat plus you have a tree so the economics could look good there because you keep yeah. your yield uh, your yield uh, in in uh, in wheat plus if you have for example it depends what trees they're growing it wouldn't be the case if you're growing chestnuts because your line would be your your the space they will occupy would be much larger but yeah. it would be but, the case for tree crops. But then the like income would be more. Yeah. Exactly. So we need uh, this is complex, huh? It really depends on what and it's crop so with context what crop. dependent. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're you're kind of splitting hairs. Yeah. To a certain degree. And if you're ecologically motivated, the answer is yes, plant trees. If you're a purely economic animal, then the answer is probably plant trees, maybe. Do you want to be managing trees? And uh yeah, I mean, let's get away from the answer of, oh, it depends on your context, um, which is uh, ubiquitously true and t sometimes insufferable. Um, the, <laughs> I, 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 the, the, the base question, at least in North American context, could be phrased as, if you planted all of the ag land in North America to widely spaced alley cropping systems would for a would farmers make more money b would you still be food secure and c how ecologically worth it is that and i think based on the data farmers their income would not be compromised depending on the tree species and the spacing um but they have to manage more complexity in terms of calorie production uh, I think you, not I think, you would produce more calories depending on the species of trees. You probably produce like 3% fewer calories if you're alley cropping widely spaced timber trees. However, in the year 2000, we grew, I say we as in the world, grew enough food to feed 8 billion people. And I don't know what the population of the earth is right now, but I think we're going to peak at like 9. And then that would suggest that like, calorie production is not the constraint um which it it was in 1800 that's like a very hobbesian idea and that we have to like shift a little bit towards rousseau in that nature yes can be scary that's hobbes but rousseau says that it's also beautiful and useful very interesting very very interesting I still like let, let let me play um the the very ecologically um let's say driven agroforester which I'm I I'm I'm not just I obviously everybody knows I love it, ecology and and I do this for ecosystems but I, I have a very practical way of approaching agroforestry um um and but so if I really focus on this then I would say wait like it doesn't matter about your complexity okay added complexity for the farmer 
That's not the issue. The issue is we need more trees on the landscape. And they, if they help us to meet ecological objectives like carbon sequestration, biodiversity, which they do, just putting an alley cropping system does increase biodiversity. We've got studies on this. It will contribute. If we have a whole landscape with alley cropping system where every 60 meters there is a line of trees, Plus, it helps alleviate pressures off. Well, we're, we're getting into scarce biomass mode as well. You know, where every inch of where every hectare is being used and farmed somewhere, either producing, you know, these natural forests of France is very few, actually, even though it's a very forested country. Most of it is intensive spruce or uh, oak forests. They're managed. They select out other trees just to have the oaks. I've lived close to them most of my life. And so it's a very different feeling than when you go to the mountains and uh, in the natural parks of the Jura, just where I was living, just like, you know, like 10 kilometers, 20 kilometers away. It was a completely different feeling of a forest, super diverse, a, a forest that's structured in a completely different way, old growth with new growth, you know, like basically a very old growth forest diversified forest there was beech trees cherry trees in up in the up in the in the mountains um, um mixed with the spruce mixed with the oaks up to a certain extent anyway it's beautiful and and you know like we if we want to achieve our ecological objectives maybe we need to to to, um, to just kind of suck it up and to go through that kind of level of complexity and so the question is what do we need to provide farmers in order for them to accept and to not be scared of because i also really understand their perspective yeah. They have already a big job to do and it's already complicated and it's already tough and it's already pretty shit in many instances economically. Yeah. And then you're and telling them, ah, you've got to add trees every 60 meters now. Yeah, and they you don't know? have oodles of disposable income. Or time. Yeah. Okay, so it's like, okay, we, we know that and we appreciate that and any farmer listening, thank you for you know going through this tough stuff to feed us. So we're going to now try to motivate you to add trees every 60 meters on your land. How yep. are we going to do that? <laughs> you know, it's a nice theoretical <laughs> kind of question to ask. Like, it's not yep. so practical as the rest of the conversation, but I think it's an important one to maybe guide conversations as agroforestry designers or as agroforestry enthusiasts, people that communicate about it. You know, yep. we, we should be thinking about this. It's actually more practical than I'm making it seem. It's a pretty practical question. Yeah. So <clears throat> I, I'm trained in, as an economist, so I'm naturally going to say there's a price on that. And if we pay farmers a certain amount, they will plant trees. There's also a uh, sociological and psychological question of like, is that acceptable? Uh, for 10,000 years, we've been clearing the forest and planting grain. And we don't like long grass because there are snakes in the grass. And snakes are the third most deadly animal to humans after other humans and mosquitoes. So like... Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, That's crazy. Okay. I mean, we, we used to live in trees. We slept in trees uh, a million plus years ago. No, more than that. Um, more than that? Well, whatever. Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I can't help you there. <laughs> so there's like um, the other thing is like a, a denuded landscape to a certain extent is really dissatisfying because it's ecologically barren and you can also see across it and know that there is not a predator trying to eat you so like the savanna biome say trees 60 feet apart is great uh because you have trees and you have uh line of sight you have a lot of food um yeah so that's all what that's evolutionary psychology and then is this widely accepted i think there's a certain amount of inertia that you have to overcome to the 
so such that it would be more accepted. Um, I, I would just come back to like it's to the idea that this is going to start with putting a higher price on starting with trees on marginal landscapes, uh, steep land, riparian buffers, uh, and finding those uh, Goldilocks systems of production and income on marginal land, and that being the early successional species system uh, that's that i mean that figuratively not literally uh in the quest to establish agroforestry as the cornerstone of agriculture so you're saying we'd start with marginal land yeah start start with so start with profitable ecologically productive systems on marginal land and that's a that's a small overlap in that venn diagram Interesting. And yet what we've seen is, or what we know is also like tree systems and agroforestry on productive land is more it's profitable. Most productive. Oh yeah. It's most productive and most profitable. Trees grow the fastest and on marginal land. So we're using marginal land because somehow we fear giving up our productive land. land. Yeah. Because exactly. like Europe, Europe has gone through famine and uh, like the, the Chinese are importing calories such that their people don't revolt that's a little bit political but like that's objectively i don't think that all that false and if you talk to people from the uk they're on a small island in the north atlantic that doesn't produce that many calories so there was this i think it was expressed in brexit feel free to uh correct me here anyone but there's a certain uh broad worry nervousness around food security in places like england and europe that there frankly is not in north america so people are scared to decrease food production um so i think like you got to focus on food income and ecological quality nice very interesting let's shift to our next topic have to kind of push us to the next topic, even though we could continue on this one for a while. Totally. Um, and I would like to know a bit more because it comes up all the time and we're all actively engaged in it. We've got a good project. We've done a good model. We've thought about how we're going to bring in ecosystem services into our orchard and how we're going to diversify it. We've considered these things well. Now we need to finance it. We've kind of gone through the whole process of not in the, in the exact order that it should have been, but through a, like a design process. And now we need to finance this. You at Propagate have set up, uh, is, I think it's a, you would call it a fund, not sure, yeah. called Agroforestry Partners. For most intents and purposes, you can, you can call it a fund for this audience. Nice. Fantastic. And so to what extent, what are they doing? What, how are they funding? Just to clarify a bit, like what's this, why did you develop Agroforestry Partners in the first place? What need is yep. it responding to and how is it helping farmers get tree crops on, on, on their land? It's establishing a precedent for tree crops valued as assets separate from the land itself, which you can value orchards, uh, but it's, it's usually done in conjunction with the land. Uh, you can value standing timber, and that's more often done as, a, as, an, as an asset separate from the land itself. And what we've essentially done is raise a pool of capital, 
and deploy that capital, that money directly into chestnuts. And that um, creates a, a benchmark, a, pre a precedent for um, valuing, valuing a, not just a tree, but a, a tree system, an orchard as a, uh, a, th a thing, an asset that can be bought and sold and say borrowed against because it has long-term value. Uh, it's a it's a thing that exists. It has value, and what that is going to set us up to do is, um, I would expect this in the next in the next three years or so is is offer a debt product, which uh, when push comes to shove is letting a farmer or entity uh, or person get a mortgage for their trees. So you get $200,000 up front and then you have monthly or annual payments over a certain amount of time. So I'm going to need to understand a bit better. Give me an example of a project that you're financing. You don't necessarily need to name the project, but yeah. how is that organizing itself? I just like to understand like what financial relationship the farmer has with that entity. If it yeah. is it completely separate, the farmer is just being, is, you're renting the land off the farmer and paying or okay. paying him Give me some examples just to have a yeah. bit more clarity as to, I think the listeners would like that. I'll give you three examples. All right. So Tennessee, we are paying the landowner a lease fee and we own the trees on his land and he's just, he's the landowner. Um, he gets a check every year from us and we own the trees. That That's example A and where it's just a lease fee. And the second one, so he's he's Wait, not how many years is that lease? It's ah, twenty, okay. and it's extendable four times. Ah, so it can go up to eighty years. Yeah, well, tw twenty plus four extensions, so hundred. But yes, ah, um, uh, okay, ninety nine. It's usually ninety nine, but call it hundred. But let's say can can that person renegotiate after yeah. twenty years the price? Yeah, he can buy out the lease. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's a long lease document. So that, that it would take another uh, chunk of time to get into. I'll, I'll go to example two, where the farmer has co-invested in the trees with us. So he gets a lease fee because he owns the land, but his that lease fee uh, also kind of comes back to him, but mostly comes back to agroforestry partners. So he he hasn't he has equity in his trees, but he it, it, he has part equity in in the trees, but he has full equity in the land. But most of the equity in the trees, the ownership of the trees, is through agroforestry partners. So he gets a lease fee. Okay. Yeah. And who's managing the trees in in these two instances? Yeah. So the, far the farmer is contracted to manage as well. He is contracted. That specific farmer is contracted to manage everything underneath the trees. So he, okay. he mows and mowing yeah. herbicide. Well, I don't know. I mean, imagine it's organic, so just yeah. mowing basically. Yeah, okay. it's big, but it actually is organic. So he he is nice. the he is the alley crop. He is the he's the herbaceous manager. He's the herbaceous manager. Yeah, that's a he's nice not herbaceous, title. But he's, he's herbaceous he's, manager. Yeah, well, but he's managing that which is herbaceous. He himself is not herbaceous. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, you're getting into my antics. Um, so, <laughs> the, 
then after then, one then, hour of interview things start yeah. to get a bit more loose huh it's generally the way it is <laughs> yeah yeah and then the the third um relationship that we have is uh this person planted a chunk of chestnut trees we purchased those chestnut trees uh, based on all of the money spent to establish them and then establish more chestnut trees. And that okay. farmer, that landowner gets an annual lease fee plus the lump sum payment of what he spent on establishing that chunk of chestnut trees. And again, my annoying question, if there's herbaceous managers, who's managing the trees in these, in these cases? Yeah. Who's so the tree that, crop manager? That, that's, that's us. We have a farm services team and we use contractors too. Uh, so contractors and farm services, they just go around and they manage the trees when it's pruning time, yeah. they get involved, send a team out. Yeah. And we'll be, we'll be growing that team because chestnuts in the first two years require less management than chestnuts in year 12. Yeah. Makes sense. Fascinating stuff. Okay. So that's really cool because that's suddenly giving new options to farmers to engage with agroforestry. They can be like, I want to gain more income and I can lease it out to a company that will I can basically get a lease, rent out my land while still alley cropping in, in between. Yep, exactly. Interesting. Okay, fascinating. Listen, we've gone through a, a good, uh, we've done a good interview. Um, very interesting stuff. Um, trying to make interviews a bit shorter than our typical one hour 50 uh, that, we, that we usually do um, for our own listeners. Um, better to do it more frequently and a bit shorter. So... Yeah. Anyways, it was really nice to, to have you on and to talk about all of these things. Do you have any uh, final comments that you wanted to add in or anything you wanted to say? I think just if you would like to reach out, uh, Propagate team is on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find the founders, you can find um, everyone else in terms of reaching out to us. Mark's a great person to reach out to first. Uh, that's mark at propagateag.com. And then you can find us on social media as well if you want to learn more or ping us with questions. Very nice. Harry, thank you so much for coming on and discussing all of these things. Uh, always enjoy uh, having good chats with you. Really appreciate it. Dimitri, thank you. This has been great.